welcome to Hope City Church, Melbourne, Australia. Stay tuned for another inspiring message. I'd like to give a secret every time from the Passion Translation. Let's see, what would be a good... Uh, oh, here's one. Luke 4.17. I, I don't know if there's any Lukes out there left. There are a Luke or two. Okay. Luke 4.17 in your Bible says that Jesus went into the synagogue. Wherever he went, he went into the synagogues, and the people gave him glory. They glorified him, or they, they, were, they gave him glory, is what the, the text says. That's the Greek. Would you like to know what the Aramaic says? Wherever Jesus went, he went and taught in the synagogues, and he offered everyone glory. His teaching was an invitation to glory. He opened his mouth and verbal glory expressions rolled out of his mouth to the people. Everything Jesus taught was an invitation to enter into a realm not of this earth. And I think that's my mission in coming here. I could line you up and prophesy over you and you'd like that. I was getting words of knowledge for healing earlier, and you would like that. But I'm here on a specific mission, and I'm teaching today to introduce you to a new understanding of revelation. That we get out of our minds for a little bit, and we enter into the deepest pool, the deepest ocean of revelation truth. One of the seven spirits of God... By the way, the, there are seven spirits of God, okay? I had somebody really yell at me the other day. They said, you're a heretic. I said, why? I said, well, you said there's seven spirits of God. I said, oh, gosh, uh, you're right. He said, it's, it's, it's not in the Bible. I said, oh, you're right. If you cut out four verses of the scripture, then you won't have it in your Bible. <laughs> Isaiah 11 and 3 in the book of Revelation. But the spirit... The seven spirits of God are in the Bible. One of those anointings, those are seven anointings. One of those is the spirit of revelation. And that's what I come to release to you, is the spirit of revelation. Now, the spirit of revelation, the best way I can illustrate it is the lampstand. Now, the lampstand is, uh, the church is to be a lampstand. Jesus walks among the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches. And the seven angels of the churches are stars he holds in his hands. Did you know that Andrew is a star that is held and an angel to the church at Hope City? There's an angel in the house. It's the pastor of this church. So I relate to him as the angelic messenger of the Lord. And the time you want to trash him or speak something bad about him, just remember he's a star and he's in God's hand. Be careful. Now that I'm not a pastor, but whatever I do, whatever I am now, I can say those kind of things. I didn't necessarily tell them to my church because it wouldn't come across very well. <clears throat> the lampstand. Seven branches. Seven spirits, all of one piece of gold. So we have one Holy Spirit, don't we? But expressing in seven ways, 
the central shaft of the lampstand was a little bit higher than the others, and it was hollowed out. The entire lampstand was the, was the burning bush that Moses saw. It's the tree of life. And within the tabernacle, they crafted this beautiful ornament, uh, ornament called the, uh, the lampstand. And oil was poured into the central shaft, and it flowed up into all the others because Christ is the anointed one. Our anointing is in him, right? Three branches on each side. Three and three is six. Three plus three is six, right? Okay. Uh, the number of man, that's you and I. And uh, we are branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. When Jesus taught John 15, everybody knew he was speaking of the lampstand. You're a branch in me that bears fruit. The spirit of revelation will bear fruit. My wife and I will leave you soon, a day or so, and the fruit is going to burn. The fruit's still going to be here. And some of you are going to never see the scriptures again. That's what they're telling us in Jubilee over there, wherever that is, Sydney. And uh, I, I want you to, to really catch this spirit of revelation more than I want anything for you. Um, so engraved on the lampstand was fruit, bud, blossom, fruit was engraved. The progressive fruit bearing stages was engraved on the branches of the lampstand. Okay. We get this from numbers and Exodus, the lateral branches, three on each side. I'm going somewhere and it won't take long. So stay with me. The, the, uh, lateral branches had bud, blossom, fruit sequence three times. Three times three equals nine fruit of the Spirit. So every branch is a fruit-bearing branch. How does it feel to be fruity? <coughs> now, I said six branches, right? Six times nine equals 54. Now, the central branch or shaft was a picture of Christ, the anointed one, and it had bud, blossom, fruit, that sequence Four times, bud, blossom, fruit, bud, blossom, fruit, times, you know, four, that sequence. Uh, four times three is 12. 12 is the apostolic, governmental. Christ is the head of the church. He carries the government. Now, 54 and 12 equals 66 books of the Bible. Thy word is a lampstand under my feet and a light under my path. The word and spirit burning as one releases revelation light. It's not just Holy Spirit. It's the word and the Holy Spirit. And it's not just the word. You know, there are many word guys. And we, you know, we love that. But it's the Holy Spirit. You can't just gorge yourself on the Bible and not flow with spirit life and become a spirit walker, a spirit talker. So we need both, don't we? Word and the Spirit. The lampstand then becomes a beautiful picture of the Spirit of Revelation. The church is to be a light-releasing, burning, fiery lampstand. The burning bush is now to be the local church. And the people come to our churches to receive revelation light. They get the Spirit of burning. They, get, they, they have an encounter with the living God. Don't undervalue revelation. 
When I speak of Revelation, I'm not just meaning the last book of the Bible, although it applies to that. When I speak of Revelation, I'm talking about the insight, the understanding. Paul prayed for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So there's a spirit of revelation that must come upon the church to bring us into resurrection power, etc. And I believe the church has undervalued revelation. Now, what money is in the natural realm? Now, you, you, I got your attention. You like that. What money does for you here in this world, what does money do? It buys stuff, good stuff. You can build an orphanage with money. You can start a Bible college. You can start churches. Money's good. The only person that doesn't think it so is a college student that hadn't figured it out yet. Money's a good thing. We need it. We use it. It's part of the kingdom business. But in the spirit realm, money cannot buy a healing, a gift, an encounter, an angel, a coal of fire, a mantle, a fiery scroll. It can't lift you into the third heaven and show you the ten rankings of angelic beings and the seraphim and the living creatures. You cannot get any of that with money. Right? Revelation is the currency of heaven. What money is on earth, revelation is in the spirit realm. Both are power. Money has power to purchase. Revelation, likewise, you purchase, you buy with that. If you have a revelation that you can enter the holy place in the heavenly realm, if you get a revelation, you have it, you buy it, you got it. You own it. You have a revelation of healing that there's healing in Jesus Christ. The power to heal the sick and raise the dead is in Jesus Christ. You get a revelation of that, you have it. So don't undervalue revelation. You're here because of a revelation of salvation. You know Jesus as the Lamb of God. You, you're, you know the Holy Spirit. Many of you are going way past that into newer dimensions. But it's revelation that accesses these truths. That sound okay? So, we want revelation. Song of Songs, chapter 4. Oh, Holy Spirit. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Holy Spirit. Come, Lord. Song of Songs, to me, is one of the greatest wells of revelation. It's in the middle of our Bible. It's the heart of our Bible in more ways than one. And I believe it, it, it really introduces us to the language of God. And what is the language of God? Do you remember me telling you? The language of God, the language God speaks in is picture. He doesn't speak English or Hebrew. That's like he's dumbing down to do that. His language is so full and ripe. That's why you dream, uh, you see pictures. It's because God is speaking with you. He speaks to you in the form of pictures, parables, riddles, allegories, symbols, metaphors, etc. And because you don't understand it doesn't mean God isn't speaking. 
And to learn his language is like learning any language. Now, I've learned languages before. It's not an easy thing. It takes a lot of time and energy and, you know, using brain and practice, etc. And I think this language that I'm trying to introduce you to, this is the Rosetta Stone of the language of God. The heavenly realm is accessed by this language of the Song of Songs. And what is it? It's a story. It's a story of a bridegroom and a bride. Who doesn't like that kind of story? We all like weddings. We all like this kind of romance. Uh, if you're lucky like me, you've got it. But we, uh, we, we, we are engaged by this kind of heart-stirring story. It's like God's, God, God's entertainment is to... Is to put something in front of us that speaks on so many different levels and, and we have to search and, and look and hunt and discover what he really wants to say. And I sure don't know that I have it all figured out, but he's given me some things that I want to share with you. Song of Songs 4 says how beautiful you are. doesn't say you look beautiful. That would be hard for me to understand. But you are beautiful says, you are beautiful. And he doesn't exaggerate. He's saying the truth. You are beautiful. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. And I love to tell people, the whole key to the Song of Songs is that word, oh. Figure that what oh means, and you've got the whole message. Go and learn what oh means. That's the story of the Song of Songs. You make him say, Oh, how beautiful. How does that make you feel to know that there's a God that loves everything about you, that doesn't wait until you mature before he enjoys you, that's thrilled that you got up this morning, and, and he looks into your eyes and he's ravished. His heart thumps when he's around his bride. Oh, how beautiful. And then he... Uh, he starts with body parts. This is a good afternoon topic to talk about because it keeps the mates awake. But I want to talk about body parts. Now, um, in case you have any, uh, any hesitation about this, feeling like it's like something you shouldn't talk about in church, let me say to you, has nothing to do with sensuality. Did I tell you about taking my wife to the... I told you what happened. French restaurant. Ooh la la. And I, and I asked her, how, how would you feel if I told you your hair is like a flock of goats? And, and for some reason, she didn't melt in my arms. She lifted her arm to hit me when I said that. No, she didn't. But um, <coughs> Has nothing to do with sensuality. So let's take with, start with the eyes. Her eyes are like doves. What is a dove a picture of? Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Opens our eyes to truth. He, he's the revealer of truth, right? So your eyes like doves means you're seeing revelation. You're, you're hearing the voice of God. You're, you're, getting, you're interpreting your dreams. You're hearing me speak and whisper. The Holy Spirit is now communicating truth to you. Your hair is like a flock of, of goats. Haven't you been dying to find out what that means? Ladies, that your stinky hair is like a flock of goats. What is that talking about? <clears throat> well, here's the key. 
It's Mount Gilead. It's goats that are coming down Mount Gilead. Mount Gilead is where sacrificial animals were kept for temple worship. Animals that were ready to be slaughtered were kept in the pens on Mount Gilead and were brought down that mountain to the temple to be killed. A goat coming down Mount Gilead was a goat ready to be offered as a sacrifice. Now, hair in the Bible, your hair is a picture of your devotion to Christ. Samson had long hair. His strength was not in his hair. His strength was in his devotion that was symbolized by long hair. So the vow of, of the Nazarite, the, the Nazarite vow of, of not cutting your hair was, was a picture of a, a devoted heart that would not move from being pure in their life for God. What did Mary dry Jesus' feet with? Her hair. Remember, she wept over his feet and then dried it with her hair. It's a picture of devotion, your devotion. So he's saying, you are so devoted to me, your hair like a flock of goats streaming down Gilead to be offered. Your hair, your devotion is so strong that you're willing to be a living sacrifice. You're ready to lay your life down for me. You're ready to come to Israel with Pastor Brian and be with, with me. If you think I was manipulating, your ears were hallucinating. I just, it just came out. Okay, your teeth. Now, he's commending her, the radiant church. He's, he's saying to the last day's church, this is who you're going to be in my eyes. Your teeth like fluffy white sheep. Not one is missing. That's good. She's got them all together. There's no snaggle tooth there. I mean, they're all right together. And they're like sheep coming up from the washing. That's the water of the word coming up from the washing of the water of the word because teeth is what we process meat. We eat food. We di digest and process our food with our teeth. You're not sucking as a nursing child. You are chewing like uh, uh, an adult. You're eating the meat of the word of God. Isn't this wonderful? And then it says not one is missing and there's each has its twin. Can I say that that truth always has a twin? There's there's you know, it's not one or the other. It's yes. Is Jesus God or man? Yes. That's the Hebraic way of looking at it. We want to have one or the other. But the biblical concept of truth is not that way. This is why many people don't understand that truth often has two sides. It is finished, but you're not. The work still goes on. There's still things to do, but it's finished, right? Grace but there's also responsibilities. And to have each with its twin, not one is missing, means that we're, we're processing truth and we're not buying into the error, the extreme error that only focuses on one. Listen, this keyboard has, well, a normal keyboard has 88 keys. I don't know if that one does or not. Okay, 88 keys. That's a lot of notes you can play. Don't pound one key all your life and pretend you're doing a symphony. It, it, it's good that you got one truth. You have one truth. That's great. What about the other 87 keys that you need to appropriate, apply, and understand? So uh, be, beware of those, you know, and I, I, I see a little bit of strangeness coming over the church, and as a father, I just want to quickly say, I'm, I'm not trying to be uh, 
too uh, uh, mean or anything, but, but there's two errors that I see really eroding the Australian church. One has to do with a grace message, a revelation of grace that eliminates human responsibility because it's finished and grace, grace, heaped upon grace. And uh, it, it's like there are some people very ungracious about grace. That if you don't buy into their concept of grace, they can get really nasty about the fact that you're religious and don't know their grace message. And, uh, dude, I'm totally into the grace concept. I hear, I'm teaching you Song of Songs, the lovey-dovey book of the Song of Songs. So I am like 100% grace person. Totally. Have been. For years. But there's still human responsibility. We work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. They're still going to all the world. They're still feeding the poor, fasting, prayer. And, and some grace people are actually mocking fasting and prayer. And you don't repent. Jesus did it all on the cross. Repentance is not in the New Testament. I said, you're right. If you take nine verses, cut them out of Paul's letters. Nine times he speaks about it. Then you don't have repentance in the New Testament. Paul, the grace guy. Nine times speaks about repentance. So that's one. The other is the other extreme of legalism, which is the Hebraic roots movement. That is saying you've got to keep feasts. You have to do Shabbat. You've got to, like, like um, before long, it's going to be dietary laws. So the, the law on one side and the grace on the other, we, we, there's a law of love, and grace must fill our hearts continually. But find that place where each has its twin, not one is missing. Missing. Come up from the washing of the water of all the Word of God, 66 books, and you'll find the wisdom, the delight, and the pleasure of God. Amen. That's okay. You can hold your applause, but that, that's all right. So truth always has a counterpart. It has a twin. The next is uh, your lips. Oh, this is good. She's got lipstick. Your lips are a scarlet ribbon. What's that talking about? Was there any other place in the Bible about a scarlet cord or rope or who was that? Rahab. Rahab, uh, the scarlet rope becomes a picture of redemption, redeeming grace. Scarlet, crimson, it's the color of blood. It, it pictures the, the redeeming love of God. Her lips of scarlet means that she's speaking redemption to other people. Is that rain coming down? That, that's prophetic. That's very good. Uh, Bob Jones told me that we, we would always have rain in our meetings, that when it came, it would be a sign to me that revelation spirit was being poured out. So uh, I really like this, that it's raining. So uh, when you see a person that fails and has a problem, what if you started speaking to that person the way Jesus speaks to you when you fail and have problems? She has scarlet on her lips. She's speaking love. When people deserve a lecture, give them a kiss. Give them love. Be a love vessel. Be a, so full of the love of God that you, you take away shame you restore the woman caught in adultery. Isn't that an amazing story in John 8? The thing that's crazy to me is where's the guy? Where's the mate? I mean, how can you have adultery by yourself? They, there's, that's impossible. And you know what it's about, right, when Jesus rode in the dirt? 
you should get the Gospel of John, the footnote in John 8. It goes back to Jeremiah 17, where it says, those who forsake the Lord are written in the dirt. Because the real adulterers were the men that had rocks in their hands. <coughs> not the woman. It wasn't that she was not guilty. That's not my point. But spiritual adultery is to forsake the Lord. And that's what these men had done. And at the expense of wanting to snuff out a woman's life <coughs> in midst of their own hypocrisy, Jesus just knelt down and wrote in the dust. Some have surmised that he wrote the names of their girlfriends or uh, that he wrote their own names or whatever, but just the act of writing in the dust fulfills the Jeremiah 17 prophecy of those who had forsaken the Lord. So it was a strong prophetic testimony to them. So when we see failure, speak, <coughs> speak love and mercy. Uh, your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Okay, let's take this one at a time. Uh, your cheeks. It says your temple or your... Um, your temples or your cheeks, it speaks of your emotions. If you uh, really know somebody well, you can tell what they're thinking. You can feel their emotion by looking at them. Some of you are smiling at me. Some of you are frowning at me. I can see the emotion because what, you, who, what you're really thinking, it comes out. It leaks out your face. <coughs> so your cheeks speak of your emotions. Okay, your emotions, and he says they're like the open halves of a pomegranate. Pomegranate is a, is a blushing pink fruit. Uh, you know you're a liberated male when you wear a pink shirt. <laughs> There's two of us here. The rest of you, you need to be set free. But uh, a pomegranate... It, it speaks of, of emotions, and it, it's opened up. It's interesting that in the Temple of Solomon, at the top of the temple, the pillars of the temple were pomegranates. So when God looks down at his temple, he sees the open halves of our heart open to him. There's nothing better you can give to God than an open heart. Don't you want to have a warm heart, opened to God? Your emotional life, God can touch it. When he plays the flute, you'll dance. When he sings, you'll dance and rejoice. And that when it's time to weep, you can weep with those that weep. God wants some emotional wholeness in the mates of Australia. I hope I can get away with saying that as an American. But uh, I love the the bonding of friends that I have made in Australia, the, the men, I mean, I love it. It's just, you guys are just tremendous. The mateship, the way you walk in friendship and honor, and our nation honors you, and we thank you for the way you have fought alongside of us in more than one war. And uh, we, we value that about the Australian men. But I want to say to my mates, let's, let's, let's become lovers. Let's take the passions of our heart and become lovers. So in the traffic jam on our way here from the airport, apparently there was a, a woman 
driver that was like, what was she doing? Maybe a little tailgating, a little, is that what you call her? A little close. And the guy stopped his car angry. This mate jumped out of his car. And this girl, it could be, it's, you know, I'm thinking my daughter. And he's, he's getting out of the car and he's like, bully, just threatening and bullying. And we're stuck in traffic, you know, watching this. I wanted to get out and smack him. Then I realized, oh, I can't. I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm a minister. I, perhaps. Of course, I knew Andrew would help me if I got into trouble. He didn't look that big, but it might take the two of us. But it just bothered me to see this man, this Aussie man, bullying this girl. They're like, it just didn't seem right to me. <laughs> Let's get this out of the way. That was a bottle that was opened. I, so... Okay. <laughs> you guys are listening so carefully, but listen to the right things, okay? <laughs> oh, perfect. Thank you. <clears throat> and thank you for the cough drop. It really is helping me. Okay. <laughs> no, it was Becker. All right. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. Hanging on it is a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Woo! The neck. How do you get erotica out of this? I don't know where those guys come from. They got the issues. Anyway, the neck is a picture of your will. A stiff neck. When you are stiff-necked, you're stubborn. Right. And throughout God's history with mankind, men have been men and women have been stiff necked before God. And he uh, rebukes us for that to bow the head, to be submitted to God, to bend our hearts. It, our head bows down. See, so that neck then becomes a picture of our will to submit to him. So when he says to her, your neck is built like the Tower of David. He's saying, you are resolute, you're strong, you're, your will has been strengthened to serve me, to love me, and a thousand shields of warriors hang upon it. Now, I did some research about this thousand shields of warriors, what that meant. It's a poetic, it's a Hebraic poet, poetic form of saying this. How, does this, how do you get your enemy's shield? You got to whoop them. You have to defeat them. I want to read it the way I translated it here. When I look at you, I see your inner strength, stately, strong, as secure as David's fortress. Your virtues and grace have caused a thousand famous soldiers to surrender to your beauty. A thousand warriors have surrendered to the beauty of the bride. That's awesome. I like it. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like the twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Her breasts speak of her nurturing a generation, nursing a generation of young people. She's going to give the milk of the word. She's been feeding on the right thing. She's browsing among the pure lilies. She's consuming what's right, holy, and pure. So she's going to nurse a generation, the church, the breasts of the church are going to nurse a rising generation with purity, strength, glory, and valor. 
1 Thessalonians 5.8, the breastplate of faith and love. Over our heart, we're going to give this generation virtue because we have feed, fed on the right truths. We're going to help them escape all of our dysfunctional issues. Won't it be great to see the 20-somethings rise up 10 times more anointed, 10 times more healed than any of us geezers, any of us <coughs> others, that, that they would be... They would be so anointed, pure and holy, that because we've fed them, we've nursed them, we've helped them. No, son, this is the right way. No, daughter, my daughter, this is how you should do. And, and to give them that milk of the word of purity and love, it's going to shake the generations. Well, now this is really good. Verse 6. She repeats the same things in chapter 2. Remember? where she said, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I'm not ready to go. Now she repeats the same words, and she says, I will go. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go. Now, keep in mind, the last time she spoke, she was clinging to the feet of Jesus. Okay? She found him. We went out into the streets and found her lover. She got the revelation of the mercy seat is the path into glory. And now he says, you are beautiful. And he describes her head to toe. Chapter 6 or chapter 7, he describes her toe to head. But here it's head to toe. And now she is saying, after hearing words like this, she says, okay, I'm going to go. I will be your bride. I'll go to the mountains. You see, what will make people change and bring transformation to the church is to tell them how beautiful they are. And the religious spirit in you says, no, they need to be rebuked for their rotten sin. They are so duplicitous. They're so corrupt. They're going to they're gonna live wrong if you tell them those words. Let me tell you, we've got 2,000 years proving you're wrong. Try this. What you've done hasn't worked that great. Try this. Tell your wife how much you love her. You don't need to point out her flaws. What kind of weirdo will do that? Ouch. And, and you know, she becomes beautiful. The more you, you tell her, the more she lives up to it. And the more he tells us, the more we grow up into it. He puts a crown on our head and watches us grow up to fit it. We don't fit it when he puts it on. Like it, this huge crown and we're like a little juvenile. It doesn't fit. But he keeps that crown on our head and he keeps telling us who we really are in him until we mature, until we receive revelation truth, until we walk in the light of his ways. And then suddenly, while others aren't looking, beauty comes out of us. The striking radiance of Christ starts being manifest in our personality. We no longer have those buttons that continually get pushed to make us angry and, and to do and say and, and, and be the person that we despise about ourselves. Suddenly, we become a different person. Our personality is changed. We're washed in love. Something has changed us. What is it? It's a kiss. It's the kiss of God. 
There's only one thing that will cast out fear. There's only one thing that will transform the church. When that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall vanish. And when that which is perfect is come is the love of God. The perfect love, when it's come, gifts, transitory, other things become insignificant. When that which is perfect has come, in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, that which is perfect comes, the temporary fades. There won't be spiritual gifts in heaven. You won't need faith in heaven. It'll all turn to sight. You don't need to do miracles. Being there will be the miracle. All of the things that we all chase after in the church today, they will not be a part. They will not consume us when love comes. Because love fulfills the law. Love works miracles. The birthing of a miracle. I know where miracles come from. I found the source of a miracle. Every miracle can be traced back to love. So when that which is perfect consumes us, fills us, you don't have to be understood. You don't have to be applauded. You don't have to have your way. You don't have to have everybody affirm you because you have it already from a heavenly source. You don't have to have anything because love is the fulfilling of all things. And when the tree of life is in us, it's, uh, every longing gets fulfilled when Christ within us comes forth. Can I say it again? Everything you love about Jesus. The reason I say this again, because I like to hear it. Everything we love about Jesus will be spoken over you. It's, it's who you are going to be. Oh, how beautiful. That will make a reluctant, divided, troubled heart say, yes, I will go to the mountains. Oh, he forgot to tell her the name of the mountain. It's Calvary. It's the mountain of myrrh. I will go to the mountain of myrrh. Only a bride will, will go that far. Those that want to flirt with Jesus, they'll stay as long as there's no suffering attached. But when there is a union in suffering love, isn't he called the man of sorrows? Isn't that in the Bible somewhere? Acquainted with grief? We'll find him in the next chapter. But for now, this suffering love, this mountain of myrrh, she says, okay, I will go. This is amazing. Halfway through the book, and she suddenly is willing to be the bride. And for the first time, he calls her bride right here in verse 8, 7, uh, 8. It's really 8. But verse 7 first, all beautiful you are, my darling. All beautiful you are. That's a funny way of saying it, perhaps in English. But what he's saying is there's, there's nothing wrong about you. Everything that is beautiful has now emerged within you. You are flawless. 
your beauty is flawless. Can you imagine Jesus saying flawless? I mean, this is holy. This is someone who is who is indeed holy, like Father, Son, Spirit, holy. And he says, you are flawless. Why don't we start teaching this to the radiant bride? Flawless. Any one-eyed critic can tell me what's wrong with me. I'll tell you what's wrong with me if you want to know, if you're really that wanting to know. And if I won't tell you, my wife will. But you'll get it. If you, wanna, if you want dirt, you can find it. But if you want glory, Jesus gives it. Flawless. I'm so stuck on this verse. Flawless. Written over you. Flawless. There's nothing wrong with you. Everything that could be wrong with you, I will cure. I will heal. I will remove. I will wash away over and over until you don't even have a remembrance of your flaws. Flawless is your love. Perfect your beauty. Flawless your love. Perfect your beauty. Flawless your love. That would make a good song. And you don't see yourself that way. Many of you would be quick to tell me how you're nothing special and you're, you can't do this and I'm not that and, and you, you know, everybody else can but I can't. And, and you, you, you tend to major on the weaknesses. Can I say in the kingdom of God, weakness is irrelevant. Weakness no longer matters to God. Matter of fact, he's drawn to it. Listen to your king. He is drawn to human weakness. Like a river always looking for the lowest place to fill. The delight of heaven is to look inside your soul and say, I can fix that. Don't worry. I'll change that. And the flow of life comes into those weak areas. Don't you know that the weakest person in this room, the weakest one, whoever it is, the weakest one in this room is going to be like David, Zechariah 12.8. The weakest, most feeble person in the room is going to be like David, the giant killing, ark dancing in front of, king ruling, Singing songs of glory, David. The weakest one here is going to be like David, Zechariah 12, 8. You got to look at it. It's like, you know, like better than Mufasa. So that, that's why I like to teach about David. There's more in the Bible about David than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob put together. Hundreds of chapters in the Bible if you include the 75 psalms he wrote that are about David. And what was it Jesus or God said about a man after what? A man that chases after my heart. He'll be like a man that chases my heart. When he's weak, he'll chase my heart. When he fails, he'll still chase after my heart. He doesn't chase after my knowledge. He chases after my heart. So if the weakest person in the room has a destiny of being like David, guess what all of us, the corporate body of us, guess what 
Zechariah 12.8 says, We all shall become like what? Has anybody got it open to look at it yet? Because you won't believe it. You'll think I snuck into your house and wrote in your Bible. But if you read it, realize it's actually in the Bible. What shall the house of David become like? It's actually the word Elohim. I didn't say that, folks. Zechariah did. Now, if together we'll be like God, wow. Do you know Psalm 8 says that man was created a little bit lower than the angels, right? That's not really what it says. A little bit lower than Elohim. A little lower than Elohim. Redeemed man is over the angels. Unredeemed man is under the angels. You jump over angelic ranks when you become a believer in Jesus Christ. You will judge angels. 1 Corinthians 6.2, you will judge the angelic realm. Your destiny is to rule over the angelic beings. This is why they hang out with you. They're trying to get you moving so that you can be their boss. And if you're going to rule over angels, then it'd be amazing to kind of release them here. Every time you bind the devil, please release angels. If you'll focus as much on releasing the angelic as you do binding the devil, you will see kingdom power and authority. You say, where's that in the Bible? I just told you. You're over angels. You're going to judge them. Sons are higher than servants. A servant in a house takes orders from a son. So, in the book of Hebrews, when Paul, assuming he wrote it, when the book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, and it uses an interesting Greek tense, and the Greek tense doesn't say a little lower than the angels. It actually says a little lower for a little while. For a little while lower than Elohim. Somebody will get it. The mysteries of heaven is the bride is emerging, and she's beautiful. Everything he bled to death for. Tell the person next to you, by now you do like them. Tell the person next to you, you are flawless. You are flawless, mate. I just heard some wife say, you're finally getting it. <laughs> <laughs> You're finally understanding. <clears throat> so then he, he says, all right, since you're going to come with me to the mountains, let's go. And uh, the, the, the tense, I've caught uh, some flack a little bit, misunderstanding from my translation. Sharp students have said to me, uh, it doesn't say come to the mountains. It says we come from the mountains. Well, if you'll really look at the Hebrew, it's ambiguous. And I believe in this text of verse 9, of verse 8, that the bridegroom is saying to her, his bride, now, okay, let's go to the mountain. Come with me to the mountains, and we will go up to the glistening peaks. We will go up to the higher realms, the sublime sanctuary. And the reason I'm using those terms is that's what Amana, Lebanon, 
and uh, uh, Herman and Senor. That's what those names mean. So in the name of a place is hidden the, the reality that he wants to give to you. Okay? So let's go up to the mountains. Let's go up to the leopard's haunt and the lion's den. We're going to go into the lion's den where principalities and powers over Australia and the hemispheres and continents of this planet have transmitted evil and darkness over the nations. Let's go into that realm and dismantle hierarchies of darkness. It's a warring bride. You know the word for kiss can also mean arm for battle. Let him arm me for battle by the word of his mouth. So let's go up to the high place and let's dislodge these forces of darkness that keep transmitting over Australia inferiority, orphan spirit, you're not good enough. And if anybody does rise up, we'll just snip him right off like a tall poppy. Let's go up into the higher realms and let's dismantle the hierarchies of darkness and let's radiate glory down to the earth. I just read an account of a prophet that I know that was taken into the council room of God. And it was right after the tsunami that went over Indonesia and killed Paris. A quarter of a million people perished. And the Lord brought this man, he's a prophet, brought him up into the chamber room, the council room, where men, angels, and God were conferring about what was about to happen on the earth. And he overheard the Lord say that there was going to be another tsunami that would be twice as strong and would take twice as many lives 30 days after the first one. And the prophet in the council room of God, stood before the Lord and said, No, don't let this happen, God. Why do you think God took him there? Sometimes intercessors stop God, not just the devil. That's not for the immature. You read Amos 8, you'll understand what I'm talking about. God told Amos, I'm going to destroy Israel. Amos said, No, you're not. God said, okay. Three times, God said, I'm going to kill it. Amos said, no, you're not. God said, okay. Mysteries. God wants a human being to debate him. God wants to hear human voices to legislate the glory and to legislate and, and uh, def, uh, deter judgment. So what happened after that event? The prophet waited exactly 30 days, and sure enough, an earthquake, powerful earthquake, that was even closer to the, uh, what's the word? It was shall more shallow than the, the previous one, took place. And there was not one ripple of a tsunami that came out of it, even though all of the scientists said it's impossible for there not to be a tsunami. That man's name was John Sanford. You ever heard of him? The Elijah. Elijah House uh, brother. Verse 9. 
I'll, I'll go just a little bit more. We'll take a short break. Okay? You have stolen my heart. You have stolen my heart. She's willing to go with him now. She's willing to be taught warfare issues. She's willing to go to the suffering mountain of love, the hill of incense, and there be one with Jesus. He looks at her and he says, you have ravished my heart. You have stolen my heart. And, and I, I did lengthy research into this Hebraic concept. What, what's he really saying here? And I piled up all these translations. I have about 70. I actually have access to 2,000 English translations. I used 70 but f really looked at 40. A and I compared how they each said this. A and, I, and I have a list of the, the words in my uh, commentary on the Song of Songs. But it's like, you've stolen my heart. You've ravished my heart. You've, you have brought my heart into ecstasy. You have uh, exhilarated my being. And the Hebrew word is actually a cardio, uh, it, it's a medical word. That is actually arrhythmia. You give me a pacemaker when I'm around you. I can't take this. I get near you. And my heart skips a beat. It thumps in my chest. You've stolen my heart. And it's only chapter 4. How does it make you feel? To steal away. To ravish the heart of Jesus. Yeah, let the rains come. Now, I'm going to tell you the secret the Lord breathed on me. One of them. This was the first secret he gave me. And it's right here. It's this phrase, my sister, my bride. Are you listening? Now, where I come from, you would never put those two words in one sentence. There's laws against that. <laughs> my sister, my, my bride, my sister. Wait, 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 wait. There's got to be something here. My sister, my bride. He's going to marry this. What, 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 what? What is this? Bride is understandable. And uh, I have, for the sake of my mates, I have to say that I have, I've come to the place, obviously, where I have no problem, <laughs> just don't get me in the white dress, but I have no problem being described as the bride. I, that's like 80s to me. That's way, uh, it's not an issue to me at all. I love him, and where he goes, I'll follow. I mean, I really love him. So I don't have an issue of being called the bride of Christ. You want to call me the bride? It's okay. We'll get over it. But sister, my bride, here's what he showed me. The word for sister can be translated equal. My equal, my bride. He breathed on me and said, tell my people they're my equal, my bride. Think about this. Equal. 
God the Father tells you and me, you and I, not to be unequally yoked to the unbeliever. Would he turn around and let his son be unequally yoked? You are the equal. You're the equal counterpart to Jesus Christ. You've stolen my heart, my equal, my bride. Four times he says it. So I translated it, sent it to the publisher, and he calls, like, quick. I go, man, he read that fast. And he said, we're not going to publish the translation. I said, really? What's, why, what's up with that? What's the deal? He said, well, you are telling everybody that they're equal to Jesus Christ. I said, oh, name's Andy. I said, no way, Andy. I'm not telling them that. He is. <laughs> I would never tell them that. He's the one. My equal. My bride. How does that make you feel? Yeah. Bless you all over the place. How does it make you feel? Now, if you were his equal, then walls wouldn't stop you. Sickness wouldn't live in front of you. Instead of praying over all the sick, what about going and just touching the hospital wall and everybody gets out, healed all at once? <laughs> There's an upgraded version Acts 2.1, that's coming to the earth, coming to a church near you. There is coming a new breed of last day's champions and deliverers that are not going to live under the limitation of guilt-driven theology, everything that we're not, and God doesn't do that anymore, and who do you think you are? Nobody. But they're going to rise up as day-breaking champions, ready to run the race, like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, ready to run for Jesus Christ. And they're going to come with fire and authority and power. And I've seen them in my dreams. I had a dream of the darkest night you'd ever want to be in. Thick black darkness. I knew it was a moral darkness. Over the face of the earth. And I said in the dream, God, who is going to pierce this darkness? Who could ever lift this suffocating darkness off of the world? And I saw in the dim shadows, I saw... A group of young adults, 20-something young adults, young men and women, a band of brothers, mighty ones, who stood on the horizon, pointed their fingers into the eastern sky and commanded the sun to rise at midnight. And the sun came up at midnight, like Joshua's miracle in reverse. Joshua made one day into two. They ended the dark night by bringing and releasing the day. And then the voice of the Lord spoke in the dream. Daybreakers are coming. My dawnmakers are coming. My daybreakers are coming. My dawnmakers are coming. When men have a problem, they look for better methods. When God has a need, he looks for better men. There is a breed. There is a new 
unfolding of humanity coming forth, of a God-mingled people, 200 percenters. Jesus is 200 percent. He's God and man. And a a sun-kissed company are going to rise up and reverse the curse, break open nations. They will be awakeners like the earth has never seen before. It's called Joel's army. And it just so happens that Joel's army is going to come down the mountainside like the dawning of a new day. Daybreakers are coming. It's an army of men and women. Fire in front, fire behind. Mighty ones, champions that won't sit under your covering 10 more years before you'll let them do something. They may not ask you for permission, but they've heard from God. And like Eli that said to Samuel, go back and lie down, I didn't call you. They will still hear the voice of the Lord. There's two armies in the book of Joel. Chapter 1 is an army of locusts. And the Hebrew uh, text of Joel 1, you guys doing okay? The Hebrew text of Joel 1 is very interesting because it uses four different words for locusts. I mean, we don't have an English that I know of. It's like grasshopper and locust. We have maybe two. Hebrew has a whole bunch of them. So the Hebrew text has these four locust classes that are coming. It speaks about the cutter worm, the worm that cuts entire pieces of Scripture out for today. The cutter worm that tells you what you can't do. It crawls on the ground. There's another locust that is the immature locust. It has wings but doesn't fly. And so the religious spirit of today limits the believer, will put wings on them but won't let them fly. Won't give them revelation truths that will cause them to soar. And then it ends with the the fourth classification, which is the the horde, the swarming horde that blackens the sky that sweeps over the land and devours every single thing. The locust, my friend, is a picture of the religious spirit, and it's in Australia. Hindering. At the time of harvest, it comes and sweeps over and says, no, it has to come through me. It's not time. Who do you think you are? You're not the one. And sweeps over and limits, devours, cuts down to the ground until another season of harvest rises up. Somebody tell me what John the Baptist ate. Israel went through its history in the wilderness feeling like they were grasshoppers. It's a religious spirit that intimidates, that puts you down. That says, you know, 10 more years under my covering and we'll let you work in the car park. (laughs) 10 more years under my anointed teaching and you can maybe be a steward. Maybe, if you're nice. Somebody's got to let the sheep out. Who let the sheep out, huh, huh? Who let the sheep out? Who let the sheep? Somebody's got to let the sheep out, baby. Forget the dogs. Let the sheep out. Let them out. There they go. (laughs) 
So John the Baptist eats the very thing that intimidates you. And there's coming a generation of spirit-filled awakeners, a John the Baptist generation that's going to devour this limiting spirit, this putting down inferiority. Who do you think you are? You're not good enough. You're just, you know, you're not there, mate. You're, you got to be like me before you can do this. That whole thing. There's going to be grasshopper legs sticking out of their, their mouth. And they're going to, what are they going to drink it, wash it down with? Yeah. Waterfall of honey. Oh, shabarostata. Revelation honey. Honey is revelation. So I get a picture of John the Baptist. You know, here he has got grasshopper leg, honey dripping out of his beard, and he's got the camel skin clothes with the rough side in. <laughs> this guy. And I think that's as weird and strange as this generation is going to be. They're not going to look like us. They're going to eat a different food. They're going to devour the religious spirit, but they're going to live by the revelation that comes out of heaven like a waterfall. Every day they're going to see what the Father does, and they're going to do it. A Jeremiah generation's coming, and they're going to do the works of kingdom business. Daybreakers are coming, my friend. My equal. My bride. You've stolen my heart. Because you lived 50 years without ever sinning. Is that what it says? How do we steal his heart with one what? With one, one glance. What? Are you saying one glance? You're supposed to say, no, he does. <laughs> one glance of your eyes? Yeah. And you steal his heart? What kind of king are you marrying? You married up. Who is this king that's so easily overcome by a glance? You've stolen his heart. Let me do milk and honey, and then we'll take the break. Milk and honey are under your tongue. Milk and honey. He says this to her, to you, to me. How delightful is your love, and he says it again, my sister, my bride, my equal, my right. How pleasing is your love than wine, the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. He's taking the terms she used in chapter 1 about him, and she, he's now putting it back upon her. And then in verse 11, oh, my. Whew, whoo, whoo, whoo. Your lips, this is in the Bible. Your lips drop sweetness. As the honeycomb, my bride, milk and honey are under your tongue. Milk and honey are under your tongue. That's wild. Is there any other place in the Bible that like flows with milk and honey? Inside of you is everything he delights in. You are his promised land. 